Would you please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. Uh, continuing our look in, in the, the letters of John, we've been in 1 John for, for, I don't know, long enough to get to this point, if we can say it that way, I guess. And we're going to look at verses 7 to 11 this morning. If you remember last week, we talked about the test of righteousness, and John really challenged us, right, with this idea of this moral law, a righteous law, right, built upon uh, knowledge of understanding, and, and John is quite serious about us coming into contact and, you know, face-to-face with God, that we can have an assurance, a, a confidence, um, knowing that we are in Him. And he does the same this morning with this passage, and he's talking about love, and so Kind of following suit with John's thinking, I just said this is the test of, of love. And it's something that John doesn't want us, he doesn't want us to pretend about it. He doesn't want us to be insincere about it. He wants us to be completely genuine in this, this uh, understanding of love. And he, he once again sets these contrasts. We'll see here in a moment as we read the passage. And he's kind of been very active in doing that, right? Juxtaposing one over against the other. If we say this, then this. If we say this, then of course this. And he kind of continues with that thinking. But love can be one of those things where maybe we kind of misunderstand it, right? We have, maybe we think of it and define it in our own terms, and we have this idea of, of, of what it is in our own life, and, and, and John's going to define that a little bit, um, well, I'm going to say different, he's going to define it biblically, right? Not different than the Bible, he's going to expand on that, and of course what Christ has challenged each and every one of us to do. There was a story of, you know, talking about love and misunderstanding love, there was a story of a, of a um, of a stock show, there was a judge at a stock show who was judging uh, this, this, these lambs that were going up for sale. And there was a little girl who was presenting her lamb to be auctioned, to be bid on. And the bidding began, and, and you could see the little girl was in her face was a little bit distraught about what was taking place. She poured a lot of effort and time into this little lamb, and now it's being bid on by all these strangers she doesn't know. And the bidding begins, and it begins to climb quite, quite quickly. A champion lamb, and she is becoming a little bit overwhelmed with what is taking place, and tears start to come down her eyes. The bidding continues, and it begins to, to reach, and, and it gets up to $1,000. And at this, time, at this point, her, her arms are around the little lamb, and she's in full tears, crying about this little lamb that's about to depart from her presence. And at the end of this auction, it, was, it went to a man who paid $1,000 for this lamb, and he felt so overcome at the emotion of this little girl, he donated the money and gave the lamb back to the little girl. Of course, the crowd and the judge was kind of taken back. Wow, what a, what a wonderful sense of, of love and you know, endearment to this little girl who was in tears with her arms around her little lamb. And Sometime later, the same judge was, was judging essays. Another competition, and an essay came to his attention that he saw and he thought it was very interesting being a part of that scene that unfolded this one day, the man donating $1,000 to the lamb, this little girl keeping her lamb, and he goes, wow, there's this essay about this little girl writing about this lamb, and this same incident piques his interest, so he begins to read it, and he, he realizes that this is the same little girl. She's writing her experience and how she was so happy that the bidding was going so high, that her tears were coming down her face full of joy. <laughs> and she concluded that what she got in return was not the money, but in fact the lamb, which she took home, her daddy barbecued, and it was good. (laughs) 
You know, I was really concerned that I delivered that well, so it looks like I did all right. There is these misnomers about love, right? We kind of tend to define it one way, and we think of it as the warm and fuzzies, and that's not the approach John is going to take. And the biblical idea of love, especially if we think of God's love, God's love is full of his justice, right? Of doing what is right and what is true. And so here's the passage this morning. 1 John chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 7 through, excuse me, yes, um, 3 through 11. 7 through 11, excuse me, I know I could get that right. He says, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, commandment, which you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Let me offer a brief prayer this morning. Father, as we come to look at your word, I ask that you would turn our attention to you, our eyes to you, and our ears, Lord, to hear your voice. I pray that, um, Lord, you would impress upon us what this passage means, that we would not just understand it, but see it in application in our lives. And I pray, Lord, as always, that you would allow me to get out of the way, that every life would be fixed upon you. And we pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. So here we come to this passage, and, and as I mentioned earlier, John has talked about this idea of this, this moral law, right? In last week, the, the test of righteousness. And John's concern is not only to encourage um, the people who he's writing to about the, these Gnostics, these false teachers who've kind of filtered in and, and challenging the people, and they're dealing with this, con, with this kind of confusion. And John kind of comes on the scene and says, hey, here's, here it is. Here's how you know, right? The Gnostic word itself means the knowing ones, and John comes onto the scene. It's almost kind of like a, a little bit of a mocking thing. He says, no, you, you, the followers of Christ, you are the knowing ones. You are the ones, in fact, that know. And he sets these contrasts. We've looked at these. We've been in them for a little while, and we've talked about sin for like, I'm sure some of you felt like forever. The pastor was still camping out on sin, but it's, of course, that's what John was saying, right? He says, if we say that we have fellowship with him, right, and we walk in the darkness, he says we are in fact, living a lie, that we are being deceived. We say we have no sin, right? The truth's not in us. And he says, if we say that we have not sinned, and John kind of hits those things, and he creates these contrasts, if you will, with what, what it is and what it is not. And the wonderful conclusion that John has to all those is what we have if we've sinned. If any of you have sinned this morning, guess what? We have an advocate, right? Christ the righteous. A propitiation is what John says. And it is God's means by which he has saved us and he can change us. So he kind of goes from this and he goes into this idea that this is how you can know him. This is how you can have confidence in believing and knowing you have Christ. And he says, look, one is the moral test we talked about last week. It is a knowledge. It is knowing Jesus. And this morning he's coming into this idea of love. And so my first point, looking at verses 7 and 8, is the law of love. John's going to reference the Old Testament. He's going to bring it right into the New. So let's, let's look at this. Verses 7 and 8 says, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you've heard from the beginning. 
The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So here we have John who's kind of started out a little bit in the verses prior to this, a little bit specific, or excuse me, general, and he kind of comes into this idea being a little bit more specific of what he's asking about. Right? He doesn't necessarily mention the Word of God till verse 10, but clearly in this context, this is what he's talking about. Right? This new commandment. He definitely is referencing John. This is John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, where Jesus says a new commandment. Right? And John being a, a primary um, witness to all these things, definitely I would imagine he is thinking on this. A new commandment I've given to you, that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So here's some of John's thinking, right? If we know God, if we say this morning, I, I have accepted Christ. He is my advocate. He is my propitiation. If I know him, then John is saying, if you know him, then you're going to follow in his commandments. You're going to be obedient. You're going to grow in your obedience. You're going to grow in your sanctification, which is what we talked about last week, this test of righteousness. It says, and if you know his, or if you, excuse me, if you keep his commandments, then definitely a part of that is love, right? For our brothers and our sisters in the Lord. So this is the law of love. And, and I think it's important to look at it in two ways. And I put this in your notes. The first one is the old commandment to love. The old commandment to love. This is not a new, a new thing. John isn't just sitting there coming on the scene and saying, hey, look, I've got this new uh, teaching. It's very important for John to point back and reference the Old, the old Testament. Because you had these Gnostics on the scene who said, you know what, we've got this, this inside track, right? We've got Christianity 2.1. It's the better version, right? We have all the updates, right? We are this, this esoteric higher knowledge. We have this. And they've been coming in and challenging the people in this, in this church, saying we've got the inside track. And, you know, it's, it's quite unique because these Gnostics would say it's, you know, it's this higher knowledge, and then if you inquired about it, right, then they would say, well, maybe it's being revealed to you. But if you didn't inquire about it, then it wasn't being revealed to you, right? So that's kind of like it begs the, to the, the, the pursuit of these things, right? You can see the lure coming out. Well, I want to know. I want the 2.1 version. I want all the updates, right? So this is happening. And John says, look, this isn't brand new. This isn't a new teaching. I just didn't just make this up, right? This has, right, a track record here. It's been around. This is the word, right? So John definitely is challenging the false teachers, and he's encouraging the believers, right? These aren't new things. This is from the beginning, right? The old commandment is the word, which you heard from the beginning. And John is definitely challenging us. Look, here is the idea of obedience, right? It's here in the Old Testament. It's coming forward, and we have this, this idea of the old and the new. And, and John is saying the old has been uh, contained, right? This new, this old co commandment of love and the, and the law of love, it's contained in the Old Testament. And yet we have John also bringing over this new understanding of how Jesus expanded it, right? Not the warm fuzzies we think love to be, but he's talking about some very costly love. John challenges us on this, and he says, here, look, Jesus is reinstating it. So it's not new, and, and, and just so you understand that, that the idea of love is, isn't a brand new thing on the scene. I'm sure you, you, you trust me in that. But when Jesus was asked, right, what is the greatest commandment? What does he say, right? Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then he goes on, the second one is like it, right? You shall love. And this is an abbreviated, uh, a brief 
reference to Leviticus 19, 18, a shorter version. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we have this Old Testament. It's the law of love. But we want to understand it in, in the sense of this is it contains in the Old Testament. How is John pushing this forward? So we come to this idea, put in your notes, the new commandment. How is it new? If it's old, if it's been here, why is John referencing this? In what sense is this new? Jesus cited it. He referenced these things. But if we begin to dig deep and we look at the life of Christ, we understand that there is a lot more to this, right? It's a lot more expanded. And the first thing I have is that this new way of of love really is its reach. This love has reach. It's not new, but you look at the culture in which Jesus was talking, which John is dealing with. They felt no obligation Right to love their neighbor, they were told to love their excuse me, love their neighbor, hate their enemies. But they felt no obligation beyond that. The Orthodox Jew believed the sinner was not to be loved. Don't love the sinner; that makes us unclean. Right? They are the ones, obviously, God wanted to destroy. So thankful, you think of the Pharisee. Right? So thankful, I'm not like these people. Right? They believed the Gentiles were not to be loved. They were created for destruction. This is the culture in which Jesus comes in with this idea of love and says, look, this is it. And John picks up on it. He's a witness to these commands. He's bringing it right over and he's challenging this church. And you think of it, of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You may want to turn there because the reading might be kind of small. I can see it fine. Not really. It's just glasses. But this is what Jesus says, Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, here's the, 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 the fix, right? Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the, on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet the, your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Right? Your love is to grow. It has a stronger reach. And Jesus says it's, it's quite easy, and we probably can all attest to this. It's easy to love those who are lovable. And everyone said... Amen, right? But it's difficult to love those. And love is costly. Jesus, and definitely John here, has this idea that this love is meant to reach. It's meant to go forward. Jesus taught these words to a culture who understood an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Right? We love our neighbors. We hate our enemies. This is the godly thing, right? The addendums they made to the law. And Jesus comes in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, no, this love is to reach. We look at Jesus' life. He became a friend of sinners. Matthew 11. He was a sympathetic listener and teacher of women. Cross-cultural, right? John 4, great example of that. He goes to the cross for our salvation, for the Gentiles. We benefit from that. And what does Jesus tell his disciples at the very end, when he's, before his ascension, go into all the nations, Right? Baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy. Take this message forward. He says we are to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, the ends of the earth in Acts 1.8. It's 
the idea of this new love. It's not just, hey, you know, we should love. That's a good thing. John brings this whole concept over and says, look, love is expanded. Jesus expanded this thing. It's not a new commandment. It's in the Old Testament. But guess what? Jesus is reinstating it. He's expanding it, and now it has reach, right? God has reach of this love through his children. It also, so we see it in reach. The second one is we see it, uh, and it's new in its depth. Love is immensely new in its depth. We see the height and depth of God revealed in the cross. What is God willing to do for you? Quite a lot, right? There's nothing else on earth that compares to what Christ has done for us on the cross. I love how John later in 1 John 3.16, one of my favorite verses, we talked about this verse actually this morning in, in my life group, but uh, he succinctly defines what is love, right? 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love because he laid down. Speaking of Jesus, he laid down his life for us, right? We are the us here. And we also ought to lay down our lives for our brethren, right? What Christ has done, we see the depth, and we see this new application, right? It has reach. It has depth. And if you're wor- worried or concerned about the depth at which Jesus went for you, just think for a moment. As Paul says, he left his glory aside, took upon himself the form of a human. He dies on a cross, bears our sins, the fallen nature of man. He takes the punishment to the point where he cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So we see the depth at which Jesus is willing to go. Now, it's important to understand we're not talking about these things or, or a call upon us, right? We maybe have to lay down our lives. We have to understand that there is an expectation that you would be the hands and feet. This love has reach. It has depth. It also has, this last one here, influence. John mentions the word in verse 8, which thing is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Right? The idea of a genuine. True mean here is, it means genuine. Genuine love. It's now being seen. How is this love being seen? Right? How is it manifesting itself in Atwater, USA? How is it manifesting itself in your family? And so on and so forth. Well, John says it's you. Right? Not just Jesus, but in you. Your changed life. And so we see this, this difference. The Old Testament has this law. We see it there. It's all there. It's contained. And yet Jesus brings this over and he expands it. Love now has reach. It has depth. It has influence. There's a story of, maybe you're familiar with this, of Corrie Ten Boom and her family who resisted the Nazis by hiding Jews in their home. They were ultimately discovered and sent to a concentration camp, and Corey barely survived until the end of the war. Her family members died in captivity. Seared by the terrible trial by fire, Corey's faith in God also survived. And she spent much of her time in post-war years traveling in Germany and elsewhere in Europe, sharing her faith in Christ. On one occasion in 1947, while speaking in a church in Munich, she noticed a balding man in a gray overcoat near the rear of the basement room. She had been speaking on the subject of God's forgiveness, but her heart froze within her when she recognized the man. She could not picture him as she had seen him. Excuse me, she could picture him as she had seen him so many times before in a blue Nazi uniform and cap. The cruelest of the guards at the Ravensbrück 
camp where Corey had suffered the most horrible indignities and where her sister, her own sister, had perished. Yet here he was, at the end of her talk, coming up the aisle towards her with his hand thrust out. The word said, thank you for your fine message. He said, how wonderful it is to know that our sins are at the bottom of the sea. Yes, Corey had said that. She had spoken so easily of God's forgiveness, but here was a man whom she despised and condemned with every fiber of her being. She couldn't take his hand. She couldn't extend forgiveness to this Nazi oppressor. She realized that this man didn't remember her. I mean, how could he remember one prisoner among a thousand? The man continued, you mentioned, excuse me, you mentioned Ravensbrück, and his hand was still extended. He said, I was a guard there. I'm ashamed to admit it, but it's true. But since then, I've come to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. It has been hard for me to forgive myself of all the cruel things I did, but I know that God has forgiven me. And please, if you would, I would like to hear from your lips, too, that God has forgiven me. And Corey recorded her response in her book. She said, I stood there. I whose sins had again and again been forgiven and could not forgive. It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. It was, the, it was as simple and as horrible as that. And I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into one that was stretched out towards me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arms, and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did at that moment. See, this is the challenge in which the Lord calls his church to move forward. John is saying there's an, old, there's an old commandment. It's not an, an original thing here, but it is definitely expanded. And the love of which God extends to us has profound reach, immense depth, and wonderful influence. And now more than ever, as we look at our world and the things that are happening and the divisions that are taking place, and the answer to those divisions seems to be more division. More now than ever, the church of Jesus Christ needs to offer the, the only hope. There is a love that reaches across those lines, that digs deep into the brokenness of their lives, and can bring them face to face, just as John is challenging us this morning, the love of God. So we see this is the law of love. Here it is. He spells it out. But it's not enough for John. He says, let's bring this now into application in your own life. And he goes on, what I'm calling the life of love. These are verses 9 through 11. He says, he who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. 
He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him, but he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John says the darkness is passing away and the true light, right, in verse 8, is already shining. However, right, the darkness isn't completely gone. And the light is not being seen by everyone. And so John gives us some examples. And the first one I call a lifeless love. This is verse 9. He says, right, he who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. And it's interesting, here we have these parallels where John, once again, is, is talking to the Gnostic followers, right? These are the people coming in, saying, saying one thing, doing another. And he has these, these parallels where, where we see in verse 6 and verse 8 and verse 10, you know, if we say, right, if we say we have no sin, if we say we walk in the light, if we say we have, we have not sinned, and here we have the same parallel, right? He who says, it's similar to the argument in, in verse 2, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 4, where he says, he who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar. The truth is not in him, right? In verse 4 he says that, but here he doesn't say truth. Here he says, this person is in darkness until now. So he's going after these Gnostics who claim to be the enlightened ones. In actuality, he's saying this person who follows the love, to genuinely love, biblically love, is operating in darkness. Paul picks up on this theme in, in the chapter we read earlier in our, re, our scripture reading, 1 Corinthians 13, 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. So John says here, right, going to the idea of assurance and proofs of God's love that is reaching, that it goes depth, that crosses these lines, that engages people, saying if, if you have a lifeless, if you're claiming one, but yet your love is lifeless, he's saying you're walking in darkness. He goes on from there, and he kind of sandwiches the positive one in between, in between two negatives. And so the second one is what I'm calling a living love, which is verse 10. He says, he who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. There's no cause for stumbling in him. This is the positive one. He shows that he abides. He's obedient. Right? We trust the word. We trust what it says. We, we're doing our part. We're moving forward. This person is walking in the light. So they do not stumble. You know, it's interesting here that we, we kind of see this idea that it's not necessarily the effect of others. We tend to think about how I influence and, and affect others. But here John is saying this is a personal thing. This is how you personally can have assurance. This is how you personally coming face to face with God can say, no, I'm, I'm living this out. It has to, to deal with the individual. It's not necessarily an application into other people's lives, but he's saying you, right? he who loves his brother abides in the light. There's no cause for stumbling in him. And these verses introduce an important idea that our love and hatred not only reveal whether we're in the lights or in the darkness, but it reveals the idea that it contributes towards either lights or darkness. John isn't saying that you know, if we come to this and the and person does this, he's saying if you walk in the lights, then there's more light. Right? There's more knowledge, there's more understanding, there's more ability to process this world and look at it correctly through God's eyes. The person who's walking in darkness, ultimately the darkness continues to grow. 
So we want to be sure that as we live, right, we have a living love. And from there, John goes back to the negative example. He says what I'm calling a contrasting love. In verse 11, he says, But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Here we have the contrast. The opposite of love is hate. The opposite of light is darkness. And he tells the one who loves his brother, we have consequences, right? We grow in, in our understanding. We walk in the light, and the person who hates his brother also has consequences. John lists them out for us. He says the first consequence of someone operating in, and who hates his brother is somebody who is in darkness. This is like the simplest expression of its negative form. You are lost. Here we have the idea, the second one he points out is you are walking, right? He walks in darkness. The continuing, continuing action or activity, they continue in this. There's no desire to which to change. They are, they are blinded, right? Which goes on to the next point, which he says, they don't know where they are going. Walking in darkness, we are blinded. Here, this idea of there's, there's no uh, meaning to life. We can see this in our world played out all over the place. If we come from nothing and we go to nothing, well, what's the point of it? It's this understanding right here where philosophers, or excuse me, those who teach philosophy, professors who teach philosophy in, in universities have to preference some of their lectures when they talk about these things that suicide is not an option. Because when people hear that there's nothing, and we come from nothing, we go to nothing, well, then they, they rationalize it out, that, that this is all meaningless, so therefore we'll go and end our lives. That's happening. John is saying there because they're lost. And of course, the last one speaks to that, they're spiritually blind. How important is the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and lead us into the truth? And this is what is needed for our day. So for us this morning, as we see these in, in application, and, and John lists them out, here is, here's the lifelessness, right? Here it is. Assess it for what it is. You know, do an inventory in your own life. Here's the one that is living. Here's the love that is living, and here's the contrast. Acknowledge it. See it, right? And then we have to come as a church. What does this look like in application in our lives? Three things that I believe, and I put at the bottom of your notes this morning is, it's kind of understanding, and, and, I, and you may agree or disagree with me on the simplicity of these, but hopefully you'll agree on the difficulty of these. Not to, to boast that they are hard, but we'll see them in our own lives, the costliness of, of sometimes lo love entails. And the first one is we can show love to our brothers and sisters by simply, in the words, apologizing. That sounds so simple, but I think we've all lived life long enough to realize that can be very difficult. But as we see in these, in these examples, you have to realize and understand that, that John is speaking to you individually. John many times sets himself amongst our, our, uh, our group, if you will. He's sitting in the pew with you, right? We, we, if we say. Here he's saying, but if, right? If we have this, well, we should understand that, that this becomes a proof. It becomes a proof in our own lives, an assurance that if we have a desire that, hey, what is best? 
is that we follow God's word. So apologizing is a part of it. The next one goes right with it. Right? We can show love by forgiveness. It seems so simple. I'd love to say I, I invented these, but clearly I did not. It's so simple, but an application that can be quite difficult. They become quite difficult because many times God calls us to forgive and then to let these things go, even if we don't get the apology. The one thing that we always struggle with, and I think when John hits on the, on the singular sense of sin, right, in chapter 1, you did this against me, right? And because of that, there is fruits of sins that happen in our lives. We want vengeance. And this becomes such a wonderful, powerful apologetics for the truth of God's word when vengeance isn't our sole motivator, our response to what happened to us. That takes a work of the Spirit. So we show love by forgiveness, even when the person doesn't say, I found this quote from Francis Schaeffer. who says, we must all continually acknowledge that we do not practice the forgiving heart as we should. And yet the prayer is, forgive us our debts, our trespasses, as we forgive our debtors. We are to have a forgiving spirit even before the other person expresses regret for his wrong. The Lord's Prayer does not suggest that, that when the other man is sorry, then we are to show oneness of having a forgiving spirit. Whether we are called upon to have a forgiving spirit without the other man having made the first step, we may still say that he is wrong. But in the midst of saying that he is wrong, we must be forgiving. So we show our love by simply apologizing, by offering forgiveness. And the last one I say is just, I use the word demonstration, but what I mean by that is we show our love with practical application, practical demonstrations. We have to realize that love is costly. Think of the Good Samaritan, it cost him time and it cost him money. Right? The action of love. As a shepherd who goes after the one, who hunts after the lost sheep, there is time consumed, there is effort consumed. Love costs us something. Love is, right, the saying goes, a verb. It brings us to action. There should be a demonstration of this. We can't check uh, other per- people's motives. We don't know the, the motive of their heart, but we are responsible for yourself. How many times I've told my sons that, right? I didn't do it, so-and-so, right, the finger. I don't want to hear so-and-so. So-and-so doesn't live here, right? You live here, and you're responsible for your actions. And John is saying that very thing. You, responsible for your actions. Love is costly. Kevin DeYoung, I, I read this quote this week, and I just put it on here. I thought it was good. I read it on Facebook. He said, there's a fine line between really loving people and conducting ourselves so that we will be thought lovely. Love will cost us to practice it. John isn't talking about the, the, the warm fuzzies we, we have in love. He's talking about a biblical understanding of love, all things in love. And for John this morning, he's saying this action, your love that reaches, your love that, that has influence, that love that has depth, that love that says, you know what, I'm willing to walk with you, brother and sister, through this. I'm willing to, to share the difficult things. I'm, I'm willing to be accountability. I'm also uh, have the privilege of hearing it in my own life. These kind of elements of love, it becomes a proof in our lives. It becomes an assurance. Christ is at work. I'm growing in my sanctification. And it also becomes a profound testimony to the watching world, your love, how you respond.
think it's very important for each of us this morning to assess that. Not to get to the point of pointing the finger, if, if just they would do this, then I will, right? So whatever that, that may be, but to just simply say, Lord, help me. Help me to be. Help me to follow. Help me to grow. When I've blown it, help me to apologize. When I've been offended, help me to, to forgive. Because I'm going to just challenge you. We don't have time, right, to be hung up on offenses. We just don't have time, church. There's a world that is broken. And Jesus has put this command to each of you as your followers, the followers of Jesus. Go take this love forward. So I set that challenge before you as John sets it before each of us. Let us love this way. It's not a new command. This isn't a new teaching. But Jesus definitely has expanded it. And his desire is that you would take it and move forward.